Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. I was challenged this week to, I was thinking through the fact that we all live with a certain set of expectations. Because of our upbringing and environment, we expect certain things to happen each day, each week, even expecting certain things to happen in our lives and to go a certain way. And expectations can either give us insight or they can blind us. And our church is made up of all sorts of people of every walk of life. We have a growing number of young people, college and career, adults hanging around, some becoming members, and uh, you young people would do well. 20, 25-year-olds, if you hung around 50-year-olds. And I mean that because there's wisdom there to ask questions. Young people that are uh, in relationships desiring to, to have kids someday would do well to spend some time with James and Sarah Myers, who are here with their infant twins and the two boys, so thankful they're here. They'd learn something from you guys, right? They gain insight. And not just because 50-year-old people, you know, 25 years hanging out with older, not because they're brilliant, although there, I'm sure there are some that are brilliant, but simply because they just have experienced more life. They've been through stuff. Wisdom seems to temper expectations. It gives insights. And by the age of 50, you've, you've been through a lot. Like how to navigate a career, what it's like to meet a spouse, having kids, buying a home. And even us in our 40s would, would, great, would gain incredible insight if we spend time with people in their 70s and 80s. Because no matter how much we want to deny it, we're on the back half of life. And we could learn some things from those that have been ahead of us. We could bring some of the expectations that we have in our life to the surface that will give insight to us and how we should live our life. But expectations can also blind us. A tourist, someone who's not from Seattle and visits in July, might think they have to pack a rain jacket and an umbrella, only to find the weather in July is seldom rainy. They expected something, and they come and find something else out. You know, I, I, I thought of this week, Katie and I have sat in front of a few couples going through premarital counseling who were convinced that they were never going to fight. We just smile and say, we'll pray for them. Expectations, even our expectations of love and romance, can blind us. People had expectations of Jesus. He was the Messiah, as the disciples confessed earlier. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And so he was expected to come and to rule, to make all things right in the world. And just think back of all the disciples had witnessed thus far in Luke's gospel. They had saw a fantastic catch of fish when they couldn't catch anything by themselves, They saw many healings. They saw cleansing of a leper and healing of a paralytic and raising of the dead and calming a sea. And you can imagine then their expectation for Jesus is then to march into Rome and clear out all the evil rulers and set things right. But what does he say in verse 22 of this chapter? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It must have crushed their expectations. There would be suffering, then glory. That's how it's 
always supposed to be suffering, then glory. I believe we also here, seated, have expectations of Jesus. What are your expectations of Jesus? Your expectations of him can give you insight in what you know of Jesus and why he came to earth. Your expectations of Jesus can also reveal some blindness that you have about who he is and why he came. So how do we deal with our expectations of Jesus? We have to spend time in the Word. We we need to meditate on what the Bible says about him and what he says about himself. We need to listen to Jesus. So here's the main idea, real short and sweet this morning. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to listen to him. If you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to listen to him to have the proper expectations. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, and it's crucial to understand who Jesus is and why he came. And so we have two points as we walk through this. If it helps to take notes, these are the two points. First, Jesus' exit is the new exodus. Second, Jesus is more than a prophet. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 28 through 36 this morning. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. Now about eight days after these scenes, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is a captivating passage. One of those passages we should always read with a peculiar thankfulness and awe. Because it just, it lifts the corner of the veil which hangs over the world and throws light on some of the deepest truths of our belief in God. This passage shows us the glory of Christ. It's probably the most dazzling breakthrough of the glory of Christ his entire earthly life besides his baptism. And someone asked me this week on on Facebook, the transfiguration is also one of those crucial passages to understand, just like the baptism, where the Father speaks from heaven of his Son. This passage also shows us another world. There's another world beyond the grave, but not just beyond the grave. There's another world concurrent with this world right now. We learn from this passage that Christ had contact with both worlds simultaneously, which is just phenomenal to think about. As I was preparing this week, I was reminded of 2 Kings chapter 6 with the king of Syria and Elisha the, the, the prophet and the king of Syria is, is warring against Israel. And, and every time he's about to attack, if you remember this, the king of Israel finds out and he leaves before the attack. And this, this just really bothers the king of Syria. You, you'd imagine it would, right? You got him, you think you're going to get him. And, and then he thinks he's got a traitor in the camp. And he asks, you know, he questions people and they say, no, no, my king, it's Elisha, the the prophet who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He must have had Alexa in there, right? 
And, and the, the king hears it, and they leave. And Elisha has his servant, this, this young man in the passage, who's probably in the school of prophets, and he hears the rumbling noise of the army because, because the king of Syria sends his army. He's going he's to take out this prophet now. And, and the mountainside is filled with the Syrian army. And, and he calls Elisha the prophet frantic and says, what are we going to do? And the servant here has the same response any rational person would have. Right? We see, he sees the army and he says, we're in trouble. He steps out and he sees this, this, this vast army. And, and Elisha, though, his response, this is, just gets me, he says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I love this passage because it connects to it because this young prophet is relying on his earthly eyes. And he says, hey, look, there's this massive army. You just don't get it. You're old. You don't see what I'm seeing. You're not being realistic. But Elisha, in his weird supernatural calmness, knows his God And he knows there's another world that our natural eyes cannot see. And he says in verse 17, he prays the Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. His eyes were opened. And I realized as I was, and I haven't gotten to the passage yet, this is all introduction, so... We have limited vision. And this, this opens things up. The reality that we see in our world is finite at best. There's so much we cannot see. There's dimensions around us that we are not able to, to know and fully understand, but they're present. The transfiguration is not some momentary display of magic or pyrotechnics. It's not Jesus just changing his clothes on the mountain. It's an unveiling and revealing of the universe as as it actually is. And the the disciples, as we see, have a momentary glimpse, a small fraction of what's truly happening. It's an unveiling and it's incredible. So that's been my prayer, as, as, as Elisha's prayer in verse 17, for us, that we would see this morning. And I've been praying for you. Not just in general, I've been praying for you specifically. There's many things in COVID that I haven't liked, but one thing I've really liked is that you all register. So I see the list. And you know what I do with that list? Every week I pray for you. By name. Sorry for those registered and are watching at home. You need to email me if you're watching online. But for those that come in, I've spent my time in the morning on top of reading the scripture and the the passage praying for you praying that God would open your eyes that you would see and you would behold God and that you wouldn't understand who Jesus is in a greater way so let's let's dive in here okay point number one Jesus's exit is the new exodus so we need to listen to him As I said a few weeks ago, God's people didn't have a framework for a suffering Messiah. They they knew of a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, excuse me, that would come. There's enough scripture that that taught that, but they didn't make that connection to the Messiah, that that he would be the suffering servant. See, for them, a a suffering Messiah was a contradiction of terms, kind of like clean dirt or clear fog. It didn't make sense. So they urgently needed to listen to Jesus 
If they wanted to understand who Jesus was, they needed to focus on him and they needed to listen to him. And friends, if you want to understand who Jesus is, you have to listen to him. You must quit casting Jesus into your own image and, and what you want him to be and you will allow him to define himself. And so Luke makes this point here in this passage in verse 28 of Jesus praying. And just make note of that. Anytime you come into Luke's gospel, it's usually a signal that something important is about to happen. Matthew and Mark's texts say that Jesus was transfigured, but Luke doesn't have that word. The word transfigured is a form of a verb, metamorpha, which we get the English word for metamorphosis. And metamorphosis is a transformation, a change of form. But as we see, there's more going on than just that, a mere transformation. What we see in the mountain is a revealing of who Jesus is. And as he's praying, Luke says his face was changed and his clothing was altered. Matthew compares the radiance of the shining to the intensity of the sun. This experience calls to our mind the experience of Moses in Mount Sinai. Some might say that Jesus was reflecting the glory of God when he was there in the posture of prayer, just like Moses reflected the glory of God on Mount Sinai. But that isn't the focus of Jesus' life. He isn't merely a mirrored reflection. He is the light himself. Christ doesn't merely reflect the brightness of divine glory. He is the brightness of divine glory. And his glory transcends and reflects glory seen on Moses' face. But Jesus is greater than Moses. And Luke talks about his clothes. It says it became dazzling white. There was many laundry detergents that promise that when you use their product, your clothes will be whiter than white. And they're lying. There's no such thing as whiter than white. Something is pure white. It allows for not further degree of whiteness. Jesus' clothes here far exceeds any whiteness that could have been achieved on earth by any sort of laundry detergent. And the brightness of the light and the purity of the whiteness of Jesus' clothes belong together. And when the disciples looked on Jesus, they, they saw the purity of whiteness. Nothing was absorbed or reflected. The source of the light that radiated from Jesus was not external. The sun and the sky did not pr produce the effect. In fact, I believe it was night. That's why we see the disciples struggling with heavy sleep. The light source here is Christ himself. So let me ask, what color is a lemon? Red, black, white, or yellow? What would you say? All right, you're all awake. In terms of ordinary language, that would be correct. But technically, that answer could be challenged. When I say a lemon is yellow, do I mean that the color yellow is part of the very essence of the, of the lemon? We know better. Color is not a primary quality of anything. Yellowness is, is not part of the essence of a lemon. In the dark, the lemon is what color? Black. It's dark. Just like all other unilluminated objects. We, need, we see color in objects only by means of how they reflect light. And without light, there's no color. Light contains with its waves all the hues of the rainbow. When light strikes an object, some of the colors are absorbed and others are reflected. And we see color as it's reflected by objects. And the sight of Jesus' clothes resembled what we see when we look at an illuminated angel on top of a Christmas tree. The, the ornament has a bulb hidden inside of it. And when the light is turned on, the angel begins to glow. And the light emanates throughout the angel. So here, Jesus' clothes begin to glow in the purity of the light that is emanating from him, from within. 
Jesus' divine glory, his glory is shining through. They, they see Jesus as he truly is. Moses reflected the glory of God on Mount Sinai. But here Jesus is producing the unsurpassable glory of God. It's emanating from him. Jesus doesn't point to the glory of God like Moses did and Elijah did. No, friends, Jesus is the glory of God in human form. That's why we read, that's why I read earlier in Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the full and definitive representation, the exact imprint of God's real being. He is really God in the flesh. Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory. He doesn't reflect glory. He is the source of glory. He is God hitting your retinas, the retinas of your soul and of your heart. He is God. That's what Luke is trying to make plain to us here this morning. Luke says there's others with him. Verse 30, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. These two men are significant. It's commonly understood that they represent two pillars of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Moses had been dead nearly 1,500 years, and Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind 900 years earlier. Yet here they are, these men, seen more alive than ever and in glory. And here they are having a chat with Jesus on this mountain, with Jesus in glory, talking about what will take place in a matter of, of months on earth. And the main purpose of the law and prophets was to pave the way for the coming Messiah. Moses and Elijah, as symbols of the Old Testament law and prophets, this pair testifies to Jesus' status as the pinnacle of God's revelation and plan. See, a few days earlier, the disciples confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, and then they were shocked to find out that he would die, that he would need to die and rise again to rescue them. And now on the mountain, they begin to discover that the death of Christ was a sacrifice that was planned long ago, before the foundation of the world, spoken all through the law and the prophets. Jesus' death would be no tragic accident. It was foreknown, it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And, and Luke says that they're speaking to him about his departure. Literally, the, the Greek text says ten exodon for the word departure. And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know what that means. Exodon, Jesus' exodus. Jesus is again connected to Moses, as we saw earlier, as he's feeding the 5,000 earlier, which is a deliberate similarity to Moses feeding God's people in the Exodus. And the whole section is strong in connections to Exodus. Peter would use the same word for departure later in his letter in 2 Peter 1, talking about his own departure from the world, his own Exodus, in connection to the gospel and God's word. Peter would learn from this event on top of the mountain. And for God's people, if you go back into, into the book of Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt was a foundational event. It was a paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament. When the people of God needed to be reminded of how the Lord had redeemed them, the example of the Exodus was always close at hand. We see those examples littered throughout the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6 and in Psalm 136. Friends, read Psalm 136 this afternoon and, and rehearse again of what God did through Moses in the Exodus and the joy reflecting. And it was all setting the stage for this Exodus. And here Moses and Elijah are on the mountain talking with Jesus about his impending exit. Exit. 
his exodus, his departure. They aren't discussing the prior exodus. They're not talking about Moses. They're not talking about what happened when they led God's people out of Egypt. They're discussing the upcoming exodus of Jesus. The new, better exodus. That the exodus that would accomplish something incredible. You see that in verse 31? They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I find that word fascinating. Accomplish. Jesus' death wasn't going to be any normal death. They're speaking with him about what he was going to accomplish. We don't speak that way about our deaths. I mean, death is something that happens to us. We don't have control over it. So we can't accomplish something with our death. But Jesus can. Jesus did. He would say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Jesus wasn't a victim. He willingly chose to die. And this is a new exodus, a greater exodus. And it's accomplishing something. You know, if you, if you read in Exodus, and we are right now in our Bible reading plan, right? The first exodus, God's people were hopelessly enslaved to a tyrant, to Pharaoh. And they couldn't free themselves. They're locked in. They were in bondage, and it's never ending. So God sends them a deliverer. He sent Moses, who would lead them out of this bondage. That exodus was a dim preview of the greater exodus that was to come. As Jesus is upon the mountain here at night, Jesus was soon to, going to lead his people, all of his people, since the dawn of time, out of a greater slavery than any man could have on someone else. We are all slaves to our sin. Jesus said in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. And through Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the greater Moses, Jesus, would lead God's people in a greater exodus to free them from the greatest bondage, the bondage of their sin. Just as the Israelites would look back on the exodus from Egypt to remember God's faithfulness and love and deliverance, we too, as Christians, continually look back at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and reminded of his faithfulness and his love and his deliverance for us. We can't leave this scene without the acute awareness of what Jesus is about to lose, though. He has lived for endless ages in glory with the Father and the Spirit. And on the mountain, we, we read here that Jesus is surrounded by God and enveloped by him in his approval. But on the cross, Jesus would be forsaken. On the mountain, we see the life he has always led and embraced and clothed with love and light and glory. But on the cross, he will be naked in the dark, stripped of his prestige and honor. And why did Jesus put himself through this? Why did he go to the cross? He did it to redeem us. He did it for you, friend, to free you from your slavery to sin. Jesus' exodus, his death and resurrection would be the final leg of the journey. 
And he would lead his people out of the dominion of sin through death to the kingdom of life and light, as Colossians 1 says. And friend, maybe you're here or watching online and you've never journeyed into the light, but you presently dwell in darkness of the soul. And you sense it every morning when you wake up. And you feel the weight and burden of sin. You feel the bondage of sin. No matter how hard you try to stop sinning, to stop living the same way, you can't break free. And the people in the days of Moses felt the same burden. Day in and day out, they were locked into their bondage. They needed a deliverer. And they had only to believe and follow the deliverer who was leading them to freedom. And right now, in and of yourself, friend, if you're not in Jesus Christ, you're a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you have to believe in the Son to be free. So won't you join us in this greater exodus? Join us in this great exodus that God has provided through his son, Jesus. He turned to Christ in faith. That's the only way out of darkness. It's the only way out of bondage. And believe in him and what he accomplished on the cross. He died for the sins of all who would turn and trust in him. I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would turn from your sin of trusting in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. And let us know. Come find us, myself or another pastor. We'd love to, to talk with you, to encourage you in the word. Well, friends, if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to listen to him. Jesus' exit wasn't the same as everyone else's. He was doing something new. He's going to accomplish something. Second, Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is more than a prophet, so we need to listen to him. Look at verse 33. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter doesn't know what he's saying. He's essentially equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. The word tent here is another word for shelter or tabernacle. And what Peter is saying, maybe, maybe he's saying, hey, look, we got the Hall of Fame here. We got Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Sweet. Let's put up some tabernacles. Let's stay for a while. We'll have the Feast of Booths here right now. Peter wants this moment to continue. I mean, it must have been incredible. To see the glory and not die? Peter recognizes this moment as significant. Maybe he wanted to set up the tabernacles out of fear. Maybe he was afraid. I see the glory. I need to shelter myself. I'm not sure. But I think he wants it to continue. You know, you might have had the same feelings before. Perhaps this has happened to you when you were part of a certain church and you long to find that sort of church again, to recapture that culture, that feeling again. You want to recreate it, you want to keep it, you want to pack it up in a bottle and, and enjoy it forever. I've heard from visitors, I've heard from people that have been here a long time, and they stay for a while, visitors come and, 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 and then they leave because for them, they say, it's not like the church I grew up in. It's not like the church where I grew spiritually or I was saved or where I had 
tremendous experiences, and, and I want that back again. They want to recreate the mountaintop experience. They want to replicate what they were feeling then. And they, they think things, they say things like, we did this in ministry, our services looked this way back then, and God blessed it, so we need to go back to that. We need to do it that way. We can't, you can't argue with results. Friends, we, we tend to be very nostalgic in our views of the past, and we tend to gloss over the hard stuff and only remember the good stuff. And we want to recreate it, to keep it, to live there. We want to build tabernacles and just stay. And God is calling us off the mountain to follow Jesus. And that means it's going to be hard. The mountaintop experiences are episodes and they're important, but basically life for all of us is a journey to the cross. We take what God intends as momentary along the way encouragement and we want to make it a permanent arrangement. But that's not the point. Friends, if you're judging a church or our church or a worship service and how it made you feel, that might be an indicator that it wasn't God you're going to church for, but yourself. What you want out of it. Peter says, Jesus, it's good we're here right now. But maybe I should make tabernacles and we can enjoy it forever. And God responds by telling him to listen to Jesus. Peter doesn't get the answer to his question, but he's corrected in his view of this moment that he's experiencing. God is saying to Peter and effectively to us this morning that listening intently to Jesus and his words, following his life and living like him is more important than trying to achieve or recreate a mountaintop experience with God. And we should not strive to live the Christian life trying just to find mountaintop experiences. That's not living the Christian life. The Christian life is lived in the trenches too. The valleys. It's lived in the mundane. The Monday through Friday. The difficult Living for Christ is an everyday experience where people hurt us, where our expectations don't line up with what we hoped for. And we learn how to be faithful to God when things don't go the way that we've always dreamed they would. You know, as Peter was saying this, it says in verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. All of the gospel writers that talk about the transfiguration tell us right after Peter's suggestion of a building of tabernacles, God the Father speaks. And the glory cloud comes out and they see Jesus now alone. And what he's trying to tell us is that Jesus is not another prophet. He's not just a, another teacher or sage that you can respect. And he doesn't fit into your tent, your tabernacle. You can't put him into your hall of fame. You can't put Jesus into your pantheon of special people that you admire. He's not one among many exceptional people. And Jesus is utterly unique. The cloud of glory is the sign pointing to him. If you remember back in Exodus, God freed his people from Egypt and he did so with a cloud of glory. 
And what is a cloud of glory? The, the glory cloud was a sign, a representation of the transcendence and majesty and greatness and power of God. And the disciples here in Luke's gospel are afraid. Why? Because every place in the Hebrew scriptures where the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud appears, contact with it is lethal. When it comes down on Mount Sinai and there's lightning and smoke and thundering all about the mountain, Exodus 19, 12 says, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And so here comes the, the cloud around them. And so you bet they're scared. But an amazing thing happens here. They don't die. When Moses was up on the Mount, Mount Sinai and he said, show me your glory, Lord. And what did the Lord say? No one can see my face and live. But here they are. And they actually see his glory. They see his face. And they live. And what does that mean? The transfiguration is teaching us that Jesus is not only the God on the other side of, of this deep chasm, he is somehow the bridge to this chasm. He's the way. And the disciples stand there and they see the glory of God. They, they didn't bring a sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus would be the sacrifice. And the disciples weren't perfect, and yet they live when they see him. Why? Because Jesus was perfect. And this event tells us that like every other religion on the planet that says you must do something, you must be something to be accepted, to bridge the gap to God. But right here in this text, Jesus is the bridge. And so when you believe in God through Jesus, when you approach God through Jesus, when you take hold of him and trust in him, in him you live when you see God. And it's not because of your holiness, it's, it's not because of anything you do on your own, it's not because of your record, because it's full of flaws. And it's not because of your sacrifices. You can't do enough. It's only because of Jesus Christ. And we need to see that. We need to understand he is the focus. And that's what the cloud says. Look at verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is not another prophet in a long line of prophets like Moses and Elijah. He isn't a prophet trying to get near to God. He isn't some kind of good teacher just pointing us to God. He is God. So friends, you can't casually listen to Jesus. You can't add him to the list of good teachers that you want to learn a few things from. You have to listen to him. In the Greek, it's a command in the present imperative. Not hearing, but listening to him. Obeying him. You either utterly reject Jesus and all that he says, or friend, you build your entire life around him. There is no third option. It's all or nothing with Jesus. And maybe you've been taught or just came to the conclusion on your own that you can just take a few things here and a few things there from Jesus. You can learn a little bit here and there and you just kind of add it to your life. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Father says right here. It's all or nothing with Jesus. 
Moses was no slouch. He was highly viewed by God's people, one of the greatest figures in all of history of the Old Testament. He was a mediator who brought the law of God to his people. He led them out of slavery in Egypt. And Elijah, he was one of the great prophets of the history of Elijah. But the father looks on Jesus and says, that's my son. Not Moses, not Elijah, but Jesus. Moses and Elijah were faithful to the task, but Jesus is the very son of God. So we need to listen to him. And to further emphasize this, in verse 36, last one here, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This is Luke's way of communicating something to us. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone too. And here's Jesus. He is the bridge between God and humanity. Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give you, that Moses couldn't do. He's the one who can deliver you. It's only Jesus. It's only ever been Jesus. And so we need to listen to him. The voice proclaimed to Peter's ears that however great Moses and Elijah were, they're standing before him, there's one far greater than those two. Everything centers on Jesus. Not on Moses, not on Elijah. The law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. And it's a foolish mistake to believe that men and women of the Old Testament knew nothing about the sacrifice which the Messiah would come to make. Their light and knowledge, no doubt, was far less clear than ours today, but they saw it coming. They hoped in the Messiah that would come to rescue their people. And Jesus is the, is the essence, the heart of the revelation. And we're to listen to Jesus alone. He is the greater Moses. And he's greater than all the prophets. So how do we apply this message? We have three ways. First, obey because Jesus is not tame. Second, worship because Jesus is not boring. And third, be patient because there's more than meets the eye. And I'll go through these quickly. First, obey because Jesus is not tame. If Jesus Christ really is the very glory of God, not just a nice guy, one of the things where glory means is importance. He must be all important to us then. If Jesus isn't just nearly, uh, merely a nice man or a wonderful teacher, but he, he is the very glory of God, the ultimate reality, that means we have to obey him. And friends, everything in your life must revolve around him. When God says in the midst of the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him, the word listen means to obey to do what he says. So does everything in your life revolve around Jesus? Does everything in your life revolve around Jesus? Second, we need to worship him because he's not boring. This would not be boring. The word glory sometimes means importance and weighty, but it also means beauty. If you go to parts of the Old Testament and talk about his glory, like Ezekiel, you come, the glory of God appears, there's always colors, and there's rainbows, and there's sparks and lights, and it gets across this idea that we're seeking for, for beauty. And there's nothing more beautiful than, than him, and the beauty of what he did, and the beauty of who he is. You know, one of the advantages that I have that you don't have is I get to hear this sermon over and over and over again before you hear it. It really is an advantage that I love as a pastor. I spend 
I get up on Saturday and read and reread the sermon and work and, and adjust and meditate, and then I'm up early again on Sunday, and I'm, I've gone through this sermon about seven times before I've presented it to you, and that is for me. And I get to dwell on the beauty of Jesus. Hours before I get to dwell with you about his beauty. And he amazes me. He is beautiful. Who he is and what he's done for sinners like, like us. I mean, we've, we've sung about it. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty, he wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. And we're saying, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I mean, it just speaks about us living for him. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He washed away our sins. So you may do a lot of things before and after you become a Christian. You still might be a good husband or wife or father, mother and son and daughter. You might help the poor and serve the community and you do a lot of good things. But after you become a Christian, you see his beauty. And the motivation no longer is duty to serve. It's desire. It's joy. It's no longer fear because I feel like I have to live up. It's gratitude. We serve because we love him. It's joy. And we love to serve him because of Jesus and his beauty. A third thing, last one, we must be patient because there's more than meets the eye. At one point, Paul says that our present sufferings are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And even as our outer body is wasting away, our inner person is being turned into something beautiful, like a diamond. Of course, pressure turns a piece of coal into a diamond. In other words, he's turning you into something beautiful and glorious. His glory is at work in your life. Even on the outside, looks dark and heavy. Friends, be patient. Because when you know Jesus and he's in your life, there's always more to life than meets the eye. There's another world. So, friends, as we looked at a few weeks ago, why should we deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow him? Because he really is God's king. And he has come to accomplish God's rescue of humanity. And he's glorious. And why should we listen to Jesus? Because he is truly God. And if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to listen to him. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing portion of Scripture we have this morning. We thank you for loving us so well and giving us your word so that we can know you and obey you and worship you. God, I ask that you would help us to listen to Jesus. Give us more motivation to dwell in your word each and every day. Help us not to live in guilt over things that we haven't done. Help us to live in you. Remind us there's no one else so steady and sure as Jesus. And our hopes are held secure in, in him. And in Christ alone, our hope is found, our comfort, and our peace. And in him we are found, who we are, who we are meant to be. And so, Father, we ask that you would take your word 
and you would sink it deep within our hearts this week. And that we would serve you with joy. For we ask this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.